The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to P.I.'s Declassified, an inside look at the world of private investigators. Your host is Francie Kaler, a noted private investigator. Francie and her guests take you behind the scenes and into the genuine, sometimes gritty business of investigation. You'll hear stories from the trenches with plenty of surprises. Here's your host, Francie Kaler. Welcome again to our morning show. So... So let me ask you, what do you do when you need to mitigate a controversy for yourself or for a case you're investigating? And where do you go for advice, particularly when there's high-profile exposure? You may need an expert, an expert to provide tactical guidance, address distorted reporting, and with some kind of your own proactive story. So this morning, we have award-winning investigative reporter Glenn Bunting, who knows how the media thinks and operates. He's here today to share his expertise in tackling this adverse publicity. Good morning, Glenn. Good morning. It's a pleasure to have you on the show. Glad to be here. So, uh, Glenn, tell us a little bit about your background. So, I'm a career journalist of 30 years who um, actually uh, started out as journalism as a hobby. Uh, as a young kid, I used to write articles of hockey games growing up in Detroit for my parents and uh, loved to write. Uh, edit, started my high school newspaper, um, got my first full-time newspaper job as a sports editor at age 17, and really thought of journalism as a hobby, uh, not something I really had a career calling. And I was a University of Michigan student in pre-law, and everything changed when I got an internship for the Washington Bureau of Knight Ritter Newspapers, uh, one of the largest news chains that no longer exists, unfortunately, but at the time it was one of the biggest uh, newspaper uh, organizations. And I spent a summer in Washington, D.C. in 1978 and became completely intoxicated with journalism. Um, I'll bet. And at that point it was, forget being a lawyer, because all the lawyers I dealt with in Washington or on leave at the White House or Congress or the agencies. They love their job, but they loathe the idea of going back to practicing law. <laughs> so that told me something. And uh, I then got a master's degree in journalism and uh, began a 30-year career, uh, mostly dedicated to investigative journalism. 22 of those years were with the Los Angeles Times. Went back to the Washington Bureau um, for 10 years in the 90s during the Clinton era. I uh, was an investigative reporter covering Congress and the White House for five years, and I ran the Washington Bureau investigative team for the Los Angeles Times for the latter five years. I uh, went back to Los Angeles to be a deputy business editor in charge of entertainment and technology coverage and ran investigations of Hollywood and the entertainment industry out of Los Angeles, so that was great fun. And then I went back to being an investigative reporter, uh, my first mm-hmm. love, and did that for several years. 
and I left newspapers in 2007. And wow. I left because I pretty much saw what was ahead, which is a dying industry. Yeah. And while I was seemingly going to be content uh, being carried out of the newsroom in a in a in a box, because uh, <laughs> I I would have uh, been happy to have. Uh, I uh, just loved being a journalist. Every single day you woke up, you never knew what challenge exactly. awaited, what story awaited, where you were going to go to, who you are going to meet with, was always learning. Um, but sadly, journalism as we know it, particularly as practiced by newspapers, is declining. And at age 50, I decided I needed to reinvent myself, took a buyout, and joined a uh, crisis management PR firm in Los Angeles. Uh, worked there for four years, uh, became number two at the company, opened up... Uh, practice in Northern California, uh, moved to San Francisco, um, and then after four years, uh, struck out on my own and, and, and opened my own shop. So that was three years ago, actually today, believe it or not. Today's the three-year anniversary of our company, wow. well, uh, GF Funding and Company. Yeah, congratulations. And now you're, you. the, you're the president, you were the founder and the, now the president of GF Bunting and Company. Correct. Well, it must have been fun uh, being in Washington, D.C. as bureau head uh, during the Clinton years. That must have been really an interesting time. It really was. And on the one hand, it uh, was just exhilarating. You never thought uh, when you entered the world of investigative reporting as a journalist that you would be reporting a story the likes of Monica Lewinsky. And, right, exactly. <laughs> and some of the things, one of the stories I remember chasing um, you know, I remember being in the rain, knocking on doors of flight attendants of Air Force One, chasing reports that President Clinton had done unwanted sexual advances towards uh, flight attendants, and having doors slammed in my face in the pouring rain in suburban Virginia, thinking, this kind of what I signed up for. <laughs> this, this is amazing. <laughs> um, yes, but... Um, you know, it was a, a, a great run. Uh, it was great to be a journalist then. It, it really was, um, uh, you know, Washington is a magical place. I really love working in Washington because um, uh, you have a very strong uh, journalism uh, fraternity. And, um, you know, it's the only place you live where you're, you're, you're in and around journalists uh, who are a fascinating breed. And um, the competition there is just fierce. And um, there's no shortage of great stories in Washington. Oh, that, that, that will happens, always be the case. Something happens every day. It, it's amazing. So, and now I know you're all, you were also uh, part of a team that did projects that won two Pulitzer Prizes, correct? Yes. Um, I was fortunate to be on uh, one Pulitzer Prize winning effort as an editor and one as a reporter. Uh, the one that I think I take particular pride in is the one as an editor. Um, it was a three-year investigative project. Um, it was an investigation into a diabetes drug uh, mm. called Regulin that was responsible for the deaths of more than 100 mostly African-American um, uh, inner-city poor um, uh, women uh, who had taken this drug believing that it would... Uh, help with their diabetes issues, um, and when in fact it was a, a fatal drug that killed uh, many people. Oh, wow. And uh, the investigative effort, which took three years to uncover by reporter David Wilman, um, we found that uh, the FDA um, 
physicians who sat on the panels that approved the drug were literally in the hip pocket of the pharmaceutical mm. company. Um, it took uh, three years to uh, uncover the entire story. Uh, we did a, a three-part series after the first year. As you can imagine, there was a lot of pressure from the editors on top uh, to I'm move sure. on to other subjects. Um, yeah. But um, I think if uh, there's one of a handful of uh, accomplishments that I was able to achieve in my career was to beat that pressure back and say, no, there are bigger and better stories ahead, and we're going to continue um, to pursue this story. And we did it full time. We did it for three years. We did um, dozens of stories, and it led uh, finally to a Pulitzer Prize after year three, and the full story was told. And you know, people today ask me a lot, do you miss journalism? And I miss that kind of journalism because mm-hmm. today we deal with reporters and editors all the time. And the pendulum has swung so far in the other direction now that reporters don't have the leisure of taking three weeks to report a story, right. let alone three months or three years. And, um, you know, if you're a journalist today, the pressure on you to produce is such that you can barely break away from your desk for lunch. You have to blog, you have to tweet, you have to post stories online and beat the likes of TMZ, which is a huge player now in the media world. Who would have mm-hmm. thought? Um, yeah. And, um, you know, you don't get the time to investigate and dig uh, and have the backing and the resources of a great newspaper like the Los Angeles Times to do real investigative reporting. Exactly. Now, what was the other Pulitzer Prize for? The other Pulitzer Prize was for the riots in Los Angeles. And as the yeah. Washington Bureau reporter, um, I spent a little bit of time on that, but the, the, the other one that, that I was more instrumental in was uh, very much a team effort, but it was the earthquake in Los Angeles. I was in the Washington Bureau, and I was on the 13th floor of the New Otani Hotel when the earthquake literally threw me out of bed. Hmm. And uh, I remember uh, being on my hands and knees on the floor and hearing the water slosh in my bathroom in the toilet bowl and thinking somebody's in my bathroom. Turns out I was right across from the Los Angeles Police Department headquarters. Sirens are going off like crazy. Made my way to the uh, first floor, had my notebook, and mostly Japanese tourists, many of whom did not speak English, in their pajamas and underwear on the first floor. Uh, And they were very routine like it because in Japan, as you know, earthquakes are much more commonplace than here. Uh, did a lot of interviews, uh, got into the office and wrote a front page story, and then from Washington continued the reporting. Uh, with other colleagues. So that was very much a team effort. And again, one of the great things of being part of a newspaper, when something like that happens, everybody pulls together the camaraderie, everyone's working around the clock, you're working on sheer adrenaline and exhaustion. Um, There was a real question about whether we were even going to get a newspaper out the next day because our our, our printing presses were shut down. And to be a part of that uh, was was really uh, enthralling and uh, um, a great memory. And Glenn, Glenn, which earthquake was that? That was the Northridge earthquake, 1994. Okay. All right. And then what did you get? The You got the Goldsmiths Prize also for investigative reporting. What was that for? That was during uh, the Washington years. And uh, a partner of mine, Alan Miller and myself, um, led the way on a series of stories over about a two-year period where we were able to demonstrate the influence of foreign money on Clinton's first election. And Mm. these were favored, high-roller, 
very wealthy individuals in Taiwan, in China, uh, mostly in Asia, who were able to corrupt the system by pouring millions of dollars into Clinton's initial re-election, um, sorry, election effort campaign. Mm-hmm. And we were able to document uh, who these characters were, uh, how they were able to um, basically contribute um, around the system, which bars foreign contributions, uh, millions of dollars through others and conduits, and then what they got in return. And it led to a number of uh, investigations and disclosures, and it really is one of those stories where you kind of see one thing and one lead, and many of these people had mm. contacts and were very instrumental um, in this kind of Los Angeles business scene, uh, which is the reason why it was a particular interest to us at the Los Angeles Times. Um, and it was just fascinating being able to follow kind of a paper trail overseas and then to be able to confront these people and to see just how incestuous the, the fundraising system is for someone who... Um, you know, wants to run for president and needs to run or needs to raise many, many millions of dollars. It sounds like it was one of those cases where you had a concept that you thought there was something, and every time you turned a corner, you had a surprise. Yeah, um, you know, it, like I said, it started out innocently enough with one particular donor and one particular fundraiser. And the one thing that's you know nice about our system, particularly when it comes to federal election law is, you know, you have to disclose and you have to account for funds. And so when you start tracking down names and you start tracking down individuals and it turns out they never made the contribution or it's a phony name or it's somebody who you can tie to an org chart within a company uh, or you know doesn't make enough money to be able to make a $10,000 contribution... Um, that's where your instincts kick in and you say, you know, something's not right here. Yeah. Interesting. Well, and so you, when you said recreate yourself, what you have done, Glenn, I think is a major recreation. So now with your company, your GF Bunting company, you do reputation management and all kinds of things. So let's talk about that. So, so we have a boutique firm. Uh, that really is very different than, than we believe kind of any other kind of firm that's out there. Uh, we are in the public relations space, and we are in PR. I, I tell people it's kind of like being in an AA meeting and saying my name is Glenn and I work in PR. Um, <laughs> it's, you know, as a journalist, you learn pretty quickly not to trust PR people. <laughs> yeah. They are selling you something. They are pitching you. They often deceive and misdirect and... Not infrequently, they lie to you. I, I, I share a story with uh, clients where when I was investigative editor in the Washington Bureau and we were doing a story about a relationship between a powerful CEO and a U.S. senator and a kind of pay-for-play system between the two of them. And the flax, as we like to call them, uh, the PR people were on the line and they were trying to vigorously defend the senator and the CEO. And they were just flat-out lying to us. And uh-huh. we put it on mute and the reporters were showing me hard documents that refuted directly what we were being told. Just flat out lying to us. And as journalists, you know, you generally do not have a a high view of PR people because most of the time that's your experience. There Mm -hmm. are exceptions and there are people who are really good at what they do, but for the most part, that's what you think of of, of PR folks. So how do you Um, separate yourself from that pack? 
Well, we do it a, a number of ways. Uh, first, our firm is made up exclusively of former journalists of great distinction, and we have a number of Pulitzer Prize winners on our staff. And we recently hired, as an example, Russ Stanton, who was the editor-in-chief of the Los Angeles Times for three years and the head of Southern California Public Radio. And um, a a great uh, journalist with a great reputation and somebody who is credible and is seen by journalists as as credible. Mm -hmm. So the first thing we do is we separate ourselves. The very first thing we tell our clients is, look at, we're not here to lie for you. We're not here to deceive for you. If that's what you want, there's a bunch of other PR firms we can refer you to, and they'll gladly take your work, and they'll gladly lie and deceive for you. But our value to you and our clients is our credibility and our access and our ability to help you tell your story. And if you've got a story you want to tell, we're going to very aggressively and proactively tell that story, and we're going to work with journalists in helping to tell that story. And more often than not, when we call journalists, uh, are more than willing to take our calls because they generally know that we've got a good story to tell and we got to work with them on a good story. The other way we do it is we just, you know, we tell people up front, we, we really regard ourselves as an anti-PR firm. And what I mean by that is we operate differently than any other PR firm. A typical PR firm, when they get a new client, the first thing they do is issue a press release saying, right. we just got a new client. They tell everybody in the world within the PR industry who their new client is. Um, you go to our website, you won't find the names of our clients. We right. do not uh, publicize what we do in terms of who our clients are. Uh, we don't seek publicity. Uh, we don't issue press releases, as a matter of fact, because we think press releases um, are largely ignored. They're not an effective right. tool of communication. Interesting. Uh, there are exceptions to that, but for the most part, there, there's no reason to do that. And journalists are overwhelmed. And it, you know, When I used to get press releases... I used to get them in my mail slot in the morning, and the first thing I do was put them in the uh, the cylinder font. Yeah. Okay. Now journalists' <laughs> inboxes are just inundated with PR firms giving them uh, press releases via email. They don't even open them up, so they're a waste of time. We also operate very differently in that, you know, we are not out front. We're not the spokespersons. We don't go on television. We're not. I can probably count on one hand the number of times that you've seen a story that says, according to Glenn Bunting, or Glenn Bunting, a spokesman for XYZ, said, we're not in the business of being publicists. We're not in the business of wanting to be out front. We don't have an ego issue with wanting to be our name or being in control. We often work with lawyers and private investigators Mm -hmm. um, behind the scenes, and Mm -hmm. they turn to us when there is an issue where they're experts in the law and they're experts in private investigation, but they're not experts in dealing with the media. And the media has so changed radically today now that it's instantaneous, it's viral. Mm -hmm. It is, like I said, the TMZs of the world that specialize in entertainment news that are um, really leading the way. I mean, if you look at the Sterling case in the Los Angeles Clippers, and we were involved in that, um, the story was broken by TMZ. An incredible business story, an incredible scandal, an incredible sports story mm-hmm. that every major network and every major newspaper covered. But who led the way and who broke the story? It TMZ. was TMZ, an entertainment news site that pays money for information. As mm-hmm. a journalist, I could never pay, nor would I ever want to pay anyone for information. Yet TMZ paid money for a tape um, on Donald Sterling. That was clearly a violation of his privacy and exactly. arguably illegally recorded. That is the new world of media, and it goes out instantaneously. And for our clients, 
when their damage, when their reputation is damaged or attacked, particularly unfairly, uh, they need to know how do I react? Uh, what do I do? Where do I go to tell my story? Um, and that's where we come in. Well, and certainly Sterling. I mean, that was uh, breaking news every five minutes. Yeah, to be clear, we represented Shelley Sterling, not Donald Sterling. Okay. Um, and uh, in that case, it was everybody, you know, and their aunt was reporting that story. Uh, whether it was, and it was a, a global story. Yeah, a lot of online uh, news organizations. I mean, you know, we were dealing with radar uh, online. That's the National Enquirer's online news organization, right? It's called, it's called what? Radar Online? Radar Online. Okay. And Radar was breaking a lot of stories as well. And they had sources telling them things, and we were thinking, where is this stuff coming from? And we had to deal with that. And, you know, I, I frankly never took National Enquirer very seriously, but we had to take it seriously in this case because they were breaking news along with TMZ other online sites, and imagine being a reporter in the newsroom of the Los Angeles Times or the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal and having your editor come by and tap you on the shoulder and say, go to TMZ.com yeah, right. and match that story now and get it online and tweet about it and call up all your sources and get a story to me by 4 o'clock. That's a great story that breaks new ground to run in tomorrow's paper. Uh, I mean, I just it's the reason why I'm not in journalism anymore. Yeah, it sounds, it sounds overwhelming and impossible, actually. <laughs> but it must happen. But they do it. They do it somehow. And for, so, every, so for every person when, like me who leaves the business, um, they hire three young kids to do it, and uh, they uh, it, it's still an exhilarating business. And there are some who still get to catch their breath and actually dig a little bit deeper beyond the headlines, but they're too few and far between. So. Glenn, when you were contacted on the Sterling case and you looked at that, what was the first thing that you thought should be done? Well, in our case, um, it was clear that Shelley Sterling, who, you know, she's 79 years old. She's been married to the same man for 58 years. She has never sought attention or publicity She's been in the shadows her entire life. She's now estranged and separated from her husband. And she all of a sudden is being dragged into this story. Mm-hmm. And just horrible things are being written about her. She's a racist. She's an enabler. Right. Um, she has somehow been uh, fully aware and, and, and complicit in these um, affairs of Donald Sterling. And she was attached to the hip, to a man who had said some absolutely vile, ugly, and, and racist things that, that nobody uh, could condone, much less Shelley. Right. And our job from the beginning was to separate Shelley from Donald, to detach her from these kind of horrible things and, and reputation attacks that she was enduring that was on the front page of the L.A. Times every single day. Mm-hmm. And that was a severe challenge because, you know, she was married with, she, she's been married to the guy 58 years, you know, right. and, and she, uh, you know, is very conflicted, uh, loves her husband on right. the one hand, but right. there are personal things that led to them being separated and, and, um, and estranged and living apart. And now you've got to talk about, okay, a personal relationship, 
a family, uh, headline stories every minute, and somebody mm-hmm. who's a reluctant participant in this. She didn't ask for this. Right. And she had never done a, a serious interview. And, and one of the first things we did is we flew to New York about a weekend. And we sat down and did an interview with Barbara Walters. We did an interview with the New York Times, which ran a Q&A. And when Anderson Cooper uh, aired on CNN the interview with Donald Sterling, the infamous interview, mm-hmm. uh, we allowed uh, the Today Show uh, to watch it with us, and, and Shelley afterwards taped a segment with the Today Show. Now, here's somebody who had never done a media interview and who had to be media trained and coached and prepared, and she was absolutely fabulous. Uh, she was just terrific, and she, in the end, we told her, just be yourself, and she came across as authentic, uh, as a strong businesswoman, and her position was very clear from the outset. I own 50% of this team. Uh, I should not be run out of town uh, the way my husband is, and I'm going to fight for my 50%. And mm-hmm. at the end of the day, fast forward to where we are today, Shelly Sterling has been an incredible woman of strength and integrity, and she has resolved this issue, uh, court judgments uh, uh, withstanding, hopefully be, be up, will be upheld. And uh, she has negotiated a, one, a $2 billion sale to Steve Ballmer, mm-hmm. former CEO of Microsoft, and no one could have envisioned that she would have taken the leadership role and handled this the way she did and got a record price that uh, is more than any other professional sports franchise in America and four times the value of the, the, the next largest sale uh, in NBA history. And how she did that uh, in the face of all this controversy is really an amazing story, and we've been honored to be able to help tell it uh, uh, with her and, and, and her attorney. Um, in this case, just so you know, I mean, it's uh, not unlike many cases. Pierce O'Donnell, um, a, a great attorney at Greenberg Glusker, uh, gets retained, and one of the first things he does is call us and says, mm-hmm. we need your help. Can you get mm-hmm. down here uh, to Los Angeles? And that's well, typically the way we get clients. We don't have a business development um, you know, section or team, and we're not knocking on doors and making phone calls. It's really attorneys that for 80% of our cases – uh, are our bread and butter and referral sources, and they have come to understand the value that, that we provide. Well, I have to say congratulations to you, and, to, and congratulations certainly to Shelley Sterling for uh, coming up to the, to the bat when it was necessary and becoming a, a role model. That's great. Well, thank you. She really is a, a role model and a woman who I just uh, admire immensely. And, you know, when you're in the trenches... One of the real joys and satisfaction you get from from this line of work is you're in the trenches with people, and they're CEOs and they're celebrities. We have athletes, we have entertainers, so we don't do a lot of that work for a lot of reasons. But mostly our our business is is, is with companies and CEOs and and people like Shelley. And you know when you're in the trenches with them and they're being attacked, oftentimes unfairly and you are working and researching and investigating and figuring out ways to help them tell their story and then work with journalists to tell that story, you know, you get a great amount of satisfaction. And you can't imagine what it's like when people are being attacked, uh, oftentimes unfairly. Um, we have a lot of clients who, unfortunately, because of their fame and their fortune, are the subject of extortion uh, attempts and mm-hmm. people who simply want money and are willing to make up uh, almost anything that uh, they can uh, 
uh, to get um, people of means to pay. And often they pay. And, you, and one thing you learn is these, these guys, and, and, and sometimes women, never go away because as soon as they spend the money, they want more. And when you're with a client who's facing an extortion, uh, an extortionist or an extortion attempt, um, you know, it's a serious thing. And reputations and careers and professions are on the line. Sometimes part of what they have to say is true. And how you navigate those waters and how you help tell a story, um, that's kind of where we, uh, uh, where we were able to provide uh, value and expertise and, and, and consulting. Well, and that's usually what happens, isn't it, Glenn, that there's always a little kernel of truth to what's being put out there, and then it's spun a different way. Yeah, I mean, you know, look at, honestly, for some clients, not many, but for some clients, it's more than a kernel of truth, and that's where it gets sticky because you have to, you know, we always tell our clients first thing, tell us everything because we're going to make decisions based on what we know. We're not going to make right. decisions or recommendations based on what we don't know. And it would probably not surprise you to learn that on occasion a client will not tell you everything. And later really? you find out and you say, what really? about this? And it was like, oh, well, I forgot about that. Or frankly, I was just too embarrassed to tell you about that. Or I didn't think that was important when obviously it was critical. But more often than not, you're right. There is a kernel of truth. There is something that somebody did that they regret. We're all human. We all make mistakes, mm-hmm. whether it was recreational drug use, whether it was, you know, an affair early on, whether it was somebody had a child out of wedlock, you know, whatever it may be. But the people who are on the other end, and they're oftentimes service workers, people who don't have a lot of money, they're hangers-on, they're part of a posse, they're criminals, and uh, they're just looking for their next scam. And they are very sophisticated in the way they're able to threaten and the way they're able to spin stories and start out with something that's a little bit true and turn it into something very different. And they have a willing media that doesn't have the time to vet or to check or to investigate. And if it, the allegation is made, say, in a complaint that's filed in some type of litigation, that's mm-hmm. all that a respected news organization needs to run with a story. With the others that are online, their burden of proof is virtually, uh, you know, poof. It's not much at all. And if an unnamed source is to provide information, uh, they run with that. And now we're left with a call, you know, oftentimes, and I tell you, this is very frustrating for our clients and for us, oftentimes we don't even get notice before a story runs. We don't even get the ability to tell our story. Hmm. Or if we do, we get a call at 4.30 saying, my deadline's in a half hour. I'm going to run this story that basically says you beat your wife and your kids. Right. Uh, what's your reaction? And yeah. you're like, what? And uh, that's, that's the new world of journalism today that, that, frankly, we are very concerned about and, and find pretty frightening. Interesting. Well, give, can you give us another example of, because of, uh, it's really nice to have real-life examples where people have seen it in the press and then hear what you have to say about it. So do you have another one that, that you can talk about? Sure. Um, now, I, uh, I talk about, uh, and I want to be very careful here because um, there are, as I said earlier, we do not make it a, a habit to talk about our clients, but exactly. there's one client in particular that 
um, I'll talk about because I have their permission to do so. And, and what, I'm, what I'm going to say to you is, is really public record with a twist of how we dealt with it. So Shaquille O'Neal has been a client for some time. And Shaquille O'Neal is one of my favorite clients, just an absolute great guy who has overcome lots of adversities in life to today. Shaquille earns more money um, in endorsements and business deals and investments uh, as an analyst with TNT in movies. Uh, he's got, we call it Shaq Inc. And he <laughs> makes more money today than he did at the height of his career as an NBA player. Well, and he was featured on Bloomberg Business with ex- that exact uh, statement. He makes more exactly. in endorsements now than he did as an all-star. Right. So and we, we, we obviously have helped. We've, we've, we've had him on the cover of the Fortune 500 issue. We had him on the cover of Bloomberg Business Week recently, and that was the headline, um, uh, that he makes more today than he did uh, uh, when he was in the NBA. And uh, we did a, uh, an analysis of all his businesses with him. But so we got retained uh, early on uh, when Shaquille was still at the end of his playing career. And Shaquille was the subject of two extortion attempts at the same time. One in Los Angeles by a member of the Main Street Crips gang, and one in Miami by a convicted felon who, unbeknownst to Shaquille at the time, had a criminal record, but who ran his entire IT operation and who had access to every email, every phone call, every voicemail, um, everything that Shaquille ever did with uh, an electronic uh, uh, equipment and uh, turned against him and wanted uh, millions of dollars uh, or else he was going to um, basically uh, unleash uh, to the media uh, what he felt were, were damning emails and other things and allegations that were frankly made and up. It, and that was Sean Darling? Was yes, that, Sean Darling? that was Sean okay. Darling. Okay. So... Sean Darling ends up um, suing Shaquille because um, he tried to extort him, did so unsuccessfully, and then got a lawyer to turn to the courts. Mm-hmm. And in that case, um, and this is just one example of several, but it's a mainstream media, uh, so I like to tell it because it isn't just a, a blog or just a, uh, an electronic out- news outlet. Uh, I get a call late one evening that said the Sun Sentinel, um, a mainstream legitimate newspaper in South Florida, uh, was running a story with the headline, Shaq used uh, cop pals in frame-up try. And the story said that Shaquille, in an effort to seek revenge against Sean Darling, um, and Sean, by the way, had sided with Shaquille's ex-wife in a contentious divorce, so you see where that, this is coming mm-hmm. from. Right. The allegation was that Shaquille called on his friends in current and former law, law enforcement officers in Miami Beach um, and elsewhere. Because remember, Shaquille, every place where he's played, he has been incredibly active in law enforcement. He's donated mm-hmm. a lot of money. He's become... Uh, really, I mean, think about somebody, this is kind of a classic case to think about. Think about somebody who every place he goes, L.A., Phoenix, Miami, Boston, Cleveland, becomes involved in law enforcement because his family was in law enforcement in the military. His role models, his uncle, were veteran police officers. And he becomes uh, a sworn police officer. He goes through the academy. He appears on behalf of 
uh, law enforcement agencies. He helps raise money for children against um, uh, ICAC, it's called Internet Crimes Against Children Units, and takes a specific interest in that. And now it's all turned against him. And the allegation is by Sean Darling that Shaquille went out and got his pals to try and plant child porn on Sean Sterling's computer as a way of getting him arrested. Sean Darling. um, He said Sean Sterling. Oh, Sean Darling, I'm sorry. So, an incredible allegation, right? Right. It appears on the Sun Sentinel website and then in the paper the next day without any call to Shaquille O'Neal or his lawyers or to us. Mm. And we reach out the minute the lawyer calls us and we talk to the reporter and the reporter basically says he was under pressure, that they were given the lawsuit exclusively, and that they needed to get it up quickly, and it didn't even occur to him to call us. The story was just littered with complaints, with, with errors. Hmm. And we then attempted to appeal to a chain of editors who basically all told us to go pound sand. And one of the things that we find increasingly is trying to get a correction Trying to get the record set straight uh, is exceedingly difficult. And when I was a reporter, if somebody called up and had something, it was my duty to to report it to an editor. And if there was an error made, it was corrected. That's just the way journalism worked. Today, we have people who arrogantly just tell us, we don't do corrections. They tell us, no, sorry. I've had reporters tell me, you know, I had a couple of errors in the last couple of months, and if I have another one, that will not be good for me in my performance review. So how about the next story I write, I just change the facts and write it the right way? No kidding. It's just irresponsible. It really is. And we find this more and more. And as journalism shifts to online, think about online. Where are you going to go to get a correction online, yeah. right? Right, right. Story's out there. And Glenn, we, excuse me, sorry to interrupt you. We, we need to take a quick, quick break. We'll be right back. That was the voice of Glenn Bunting discussing media blitzes, irresponsible reporting, and all kinds of other things. Stay tuned. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. Talk, talk, talk. That's all we do is talk. If you'd like to talk, call us toll-free right now at 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. That's it. That's it. VoiceAmerica.com. Need to hire a private investigator? Ask for their professional association affiliations. When an investigator asks Francie Kaler about associations, she says to first join a state trade association. Francie belongs to the California Association of Licensed Investigators, or CALI. It's the largest association of its kind in the world. CALI's main focus is networking, training, and legislative advocacy. If you need a detective in California, contact CALI at cali-pi.org or call one 800 350 
C-A-L-I. For a national association, Francie's Choice is the National Council of Investigation and Security Services, or NCISS. For over 35 years, the council's primary mission has been to represent its members before the United States Congress and governmental agencies. Find the council at NCISS.org or call 1-800-445-8408. NCISS and Cali are great places to look for a qualified private investigator. Tell them you heard it from Francie on P.I.'s Declassified. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain inspired really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to PI's Declassified with Francie Kaler. You can call into the program. We'll take questions and comments at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You can also email your question to Francie. Send it to francie at pisdeclassified.com. Now, here's Francie Kaler. Today's program is Tackling Adverse Publicity with Glenn Bunting. He's an award-winning former investigative reporter, and we were just talking about how his firm, um, G.C. Bunting and Company, handled the claims against Shaq O'Neal. So go ahead and tell us what happened next, Glenn. Well, I then take it up the chain, because uh, we're not going to just get settled with the reporter telling us, uh, you know, he doesn't intend to correct the story. So I talked to his editor. Uh, the city editor, and I talked to the metro editor, and I get all the way up to the managing editor, and, and they're just saying, look, you're an advocate for Shaquille O'Neal. We wrote off of a lawsuit, and we got nothing to correct, and we got nothing to talk to you about. Hmm. And um, I was just thoroughly frustrated, kind of hit a, a dead end. And I called up the then editor-in-chief of the Los Angeles Times, who just happened to be Russ Stanton, who's the gentleman I told you we just hired <laughs> recently, right. and said, Russ, I... And the reason why I called up Russ is because um, the Sun Sentinel was part of, and is part of, the Tribune chain of newspapers, and the Tribune also owns the Los Angeles Times. Mm. And I said, I am getting nowhere on a matter which I think should be brought to the attention of your equivalent. Who should I talk to over there, and can you help me break through? And he said, funny you should ask the my counterpart, the head of the newspaper, uh, a new guy is going to start work on Monday. Hmm. And here's his contact info. This guy walks in the door on Monday, and the first thing he gets is a call from me. Oh, <laughs> great. <laughs> and he's saying, really? That really happened? We did all of these things. We were wrong, and you can't even get a correction? He says, let me look into it. Uh, week goes by. He looks into it. We talk. He says, you know what? You're right. We were wrong. Here's a correction we want to run. The correction was as Oftentimes, you see corrections. It was lame. It was defensive. And frankly, it did not disclose all the years. So we came back and said, no, this isn't good enough. Uh, here's the correction we request that you run. And they ran it word for word. And it is so stunning. Uh, I've got it here in front of me. Let me take just a second to read it. Yeah, please do. For the record, an article that ran online on August 3rd, did not report in the first paragraph that allegations made against Shaquille O'Neal came in a civil lawsuit filed by a former employee. The Sun Sentinel did not try to contact O'Neal or his lawyer before the article was published. According to court court filings, O'Neal denies the allegations in the lawsuit. The article did not report 
that the plaintiff in the O'Neill lawsuit, Sean Darling, had been convicted of bank fraud in 1999 and served two years in federal prison for that crime. The article also did not report that O'Neill, through his attorneys, had previously accused Darling of trying to extort him. In addition, the article did not report that a similar lawsuit, previously filed by Darling, had been dismissed by a judge. That's Other amazing. than that, it was a pretty good article. Yeah. <laughs> Other than that, we agree with everything else. <laughs> so, you know, had the new editor-in-chief not walked in the door and been open to taking my call, yeah. um, uh, I don't know that we ever would have got a correction of any kind. And th- sadly, this is not uncommon. And um, we find that, you know, newspapers and uh, journalists who are in the business of being transparent and uncovering the truth uh, more often than not become incredibly defensive and dismissive when we bring um, errors um, uh, of fact to their attention. And that's one of the things that we do. And we try to muster everything we can to help get the record straight because when you have a situation like this you can then use it with other media to show them that hey be careful here these Mm -hmm. are people with an axe to grind these are people who are extorting these are people who are demanding money so don't believe everything that they tell you right well there was another case with with Shaquille O'Neal as well that I I love this story regarding his uh, Vanessa Lopez so Vanessa Lopez uh, teamed up with uh, Sean Darling uh, as part of an extortion attempt against Shaquille. And whatever the merits of their claims, uh, once Gloria Allred came aboard and represented Vanessa Lopez, uh, things change because Gloria has a business model that's been very good for Gloria. Mm-hmm. And it involves, as we often call it, the bimbo eruption. And sure enough, um, Gloria has a press conference, uh, has Vanessa Lopez at her side, and makes allegations um, that uh, Shaquille O'Neal adamantly denied about um, a extramarital relationship that they allegedly had. She breaks down and cries. Gloria is going to defend her, and Gloria is going to sue, and Gloria did sue. And as you can imagine, there was a lot of attention that uh, came around that just because uh, Gloria Allred's involved. Mm -hmm. And, you know, post-Tiger Woods, um, I think we all come to know, you know, what to expect when when Gloria's involved, and that is there's going to be a lot of publicity. Uh, There's going to be demands made. And more often than not, these cases are never filed. Uh, money is paid quietly as a settlement, and it kind of goes away. And um, Gloria and her firm uh, make out very well. In this case, uh, Shaquille was not going to pay a dime. And he was very clear to me when we first I'm not going to pay a dime to any of these people and let them tell their stories in public because, frankly, I don't care. Now, we care. We care about his reputation. We care about what he's doing in the business world. And Shaquille does care in the end, but he was not going to pay a dime to any of these Mm -hmm. people who were extorting him. And so there was a legal battle that took place. And I don't know of any other case involving Gloria Allred where she did this, but she dumped Vanessa Lopez as a client. She cited uh, the potential for her client committing fraud, and she got permission from the judge to withdraw as counsel from the case. 
because once she dug in and saw the case that she had, uh, she said in the court filing that she was concerned because she sought the fact, she, she cited the fact that Vanessa Lopez was on the verge of engaging in fraud, and she as an attorney did not want to be a part of that. Got to give her a lot of credit for doing that. Yeah. She could have continued with the scam once she figured it out, once Shaquille made it clear he was not going to pay a dime. Uh, she did the right thing, and that was to withdraw from the case. She did. She did the right thing. And it, and I, I really do give her a lot of credit for that, because... Uh, Maybe in another era or with another attorney, that wouldn't have happened. You know, you, in her case, she um, is a strong advocate for women, and many of her clients, um, you know, deserve the aggressive reputation that they get. In this case, uh, I think it took months uh, for her because she did appear in a couple of court hearings. This was scheduled for trial, but in the end, uh, she figured it out. She did the right thing, and, and as you're right, to her credit, she did the right thing. Interesting. So, Glenn, you know, there's these, um, you know, these various sites, like there's that one you gave me, F-U-C-E-O, and things like the ripoff report. What, what do you do with these? I mean, how do you even address these? If you're an individual like me, just a regular Joe, how do you how do you handle these things? Well, it's a great question. Um, so let's talk about the FU CEO case. So we have a CEO who works in uh, the technology sector, uh, who is the victim of an attack that, and and this is part of the problem with websites. She don't know who the attacker is. Mm-hmm. And one day you do a search, and, you know, Google searches are everything now, right? Right. If you and I go to lunch, and we don't know one another well, what do we do before we go to lunch? We Google yeah, one you another. Google the person, right. And we look, and we see <laughs> what there is to learn about them. Yeah. That's our biography. That's our footprint. That's, that's our reputation online. Yeah. And sadly, that can be manipulated. And even though Google employs an army of engineers to make sure their algorithms are authentic and organic, there are people who manipulate them. And in the case of this one CEO, he wakes up one day, and right at the very top of his search is a website called WWFU, and it's the FU word spelled out, the name of the CEO, let's call him John Smith, dot com. Yeah. And when you click on fujohnsmith.com, you get all kinds of nastiness. Uh, you even get T-shirts and coffee mugs that say fu, the name of the CEO, dot com. Really? And many of the things on there are untrue. Now, a person of business background who's going to have lunch with the CEO doesn't pay attention to this, but the CEO has a wife and kids, and kids come home from high school and say, hey, people in high school are talking about this. And 
he has friends and colleagues and associates, and this is not mm-hmm. something that anybody would wish, even on their worst enemy, because it's really vile stuff. Yeah. So the CEO does what most CEOs do, is he turns to his company and some people and say, hey, let's get this thing taken down. Well, guess what? You can't even figure you out who it. put it there. <laughs> How do you go about taking it down? Yeah. So he turned to us, and one of the things we have established at our company is a digital media team uh, headed by uh, Aaron Curtis, who used to be the technology editor of the Los Angeles Times, and we have consultants who we work with who are absolute experts at this, and they then went to work on it. And what they found was, using forensics, using reverse engineering, and frankly getting a little bit of luck, they actually tracked down the person who created the website. And it was a person who was in Bali who had one boat and did boat tours in Bali. No kidding. That person was an engineer who was laid off at the technology company by the CEO. Hmm. And more for laughing and giggles than anything else, had put up this website. And we were able to pay a relatively small fee and acquire the website, and then take it down. Interesting. you and I and most people don't have the ability to hire firms and to pay money, and this is a very costly endeavor to investigate and figure out who these people are. And oftentimes you can't figure out who they are. Right. And good luck going to the Googles of the world and trying to appeal your case because... They're just stand in line, right? It's a very, very long happen. line of people who have been wronged online right? and who are trying to tell, just, just to get the truth out and try not to be the subject of these attacks. And so increasingly, whether it's a nasty breakup in a marriage, whether it's an employee who feels wronged, whether it's an HR dispute, whether it's just a, a fight between neighbors, uh, increasingly you can go online, you can make stuff up, and you can make it stick and make it hurt. And there are no good answers for what we do about that. Um, mm-hmm. And if you're a CEO who has the ability and the means to employ someone like us to get to the bottom of it, and mm-hmm. in some cases we'll be successful, in some cases we won't. But this is the new world of communications that we are in. And while there's a lot of great things to be said about the state of technology and how helpful it is for us in our daily lives, this is kind of the downside, and this is the untold kind of dirty little secret. And uh, if you're on the receiving end of this, um, you know, it hurts. It, it hurts. It can get very emotional. It can be devastating to your business, to your reputation, and oftentimes you don't know where it came from. Right. Wow, Glenn, that... This has been a great show. Thank you so much for joining us. We're at the end of our hour. Can you believe it? There's so much. There's so many more things I have to ask you. <laughs> uh, but um, this has been really valuable information. I think uh, maybe opened our eyes to a lot of things that are going on that uh, maybe we weren't aware of, or maybe we were. But you certainly provided provided some really valuable information. So well, thank glad you. to be on the show, and um, uh, look forward to doing it again sometime. Okay. All right, that'd be great. So, listeners, if you're interested in advertising on the show or have a topic of interest, contact me at Francie, F-R-A-N-C-I-E, at PISDeclassified.com. So, join me next week as we declassify more real stories from real investigators, 
And Glenn is certainly a, a real investigator, extraordinaire, every Thursday morning, 12 noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific. See you next week. You've been listening to P.I.'s Declassified with your host, Francie Kaler. Tune in every Thursday at noon Eastern time. That's 9 a.m. for you West Coast listeners. P.I.'s Declassified explores stories of deceit, mystery, and detectives unraveling the truth. Every Thursday at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific time here on the Voice America Variety Channel. 